0: Let's pray. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice of love. Remind us that we are held in your hands. And in those hands we are secure. In Jesus' name, Amen. A few years ago, a minister friend of mine went through a really tough time in his church and it was kind of odd because whichever way you looked at it his church was going really well they were growing people were coming to faith and being baptized their activities and ministries were all proving quite fruitful but there was a vocal minority some of whom were quite influential and they even got to the point where they wanted him out And one day I was chatting with him about what was going on, trying to find out what their actual problem was. And I knew the guy, so most of what they were saying just seemed bizarre. But there was one thing that he said totally through me. He said, one of the criticisms is that I preach too much about grace. Poof! I replied, that's a criticism, when I die I'd love someone to write that on my headstone. Most of those who have been part of this church for a while will know that over the last few years I've been doing an evening course, training to be a spiritual director. And it's been a fantastic experience sharing with people from all sorts of different traditions, with quite different spiritualities and all learning from each other. But towards the end of the course, one of the other students pulled me to one side and asked if she could speak to me. And what she said stunned me. At first I wondered where it was going. She began way back when we started this course on the very first evening when we were doing all our introductions i looked around and tried to work out who i'd get on with and who i'd really struggle with and it seems i fell into the latter category and it turned out it was because her family had quite strong irish republican roots she wasn't proud of it but as an ulster protestant as i was she thought "Well, i'm gonna really struggle with this one And then she added, but God had other ideas. Over the last few years, I've developed a totally different view of God. And it's transformed my faith. And it's you who introduced me to that God. She told me that her God had been angry, strict, legalistic, never really satisfied. Whereas I had introduced her to a God who really loved her, was kind, forgiving, really wanted, her to, wanted to bless her, really wanted her to thrive. And then she spoke of how one night she had asked me how I found that God. And I replied, well, i sacked a few. And I told her it's a journey for me too. That I'd I'd love to say I always lived as if I believed in the God she described. But there are times when a rather more toxic, angry, hard to please taskmaster makes a comeback. But deep down I sense that the God I've come to know, and I would say a large part of that journey has been during my time here, is the one whom I introduced to my friend. And the reason I believe that is because he looks a lot more like the God we meet in Jesus. It's a saying I come back to quite frequently from the former Archbishop William Temple. God is Christ-like and in him is no on likeness at all. Now that sounds quite intellectual, but it's making a really simple, simple point. Is your God like Jesus? If not, maybe it's time to ask if you've got the right God. If your God's like Jesus, or if your God's not like Jesus... Maybe it's time to give that God the sack and follow one who is. Last week we started a new series. We're going to spend some time in the story of Mark, uh, or story of Jesus as told by Mark. And last week we were introduced not so much to Jesus, but to the strange character right in the wilderness on the edge of the Jordan, John the Baptist. And John appears seemingly from nowhere after hundreds of years of people waiting for God to do something. And then John turns up on the banks of the Jordan and says, it's finally coming, it's going to happen. And he invites people to be baptized as a sign that they're leaving behind their old way of life and are ready to get behind what God's going to do. And John caused quite a stir. And some people wondered if John might be the one they had been waiting for. The one they'd read about in the scriptures whom God had promised over hundreds of years. But John says, no, 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 no. I'm just the warm-up act. I'm just preparing the way for the one God's going to send. I can get you ready for the life that God wants you to live. He'll empower you to live it. And then, just as suddenly as John appeared, Jesus arrives from Galilee. No stable, angels, stars, wise men, not even a little donkey. Mark introduces us to Jesus as a man aged about 30. And what follows is very sparse. Matthew includes a bit of debate between John the Baptist and Jesus about why Jesus should be baptised and who should be baptising whom. Mark shows no interest in any of that. Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell of Jesus leaving the scene of the baptism and spending some time in the wilderness where he's tested or tempted. But whilst Matthew and Luke have quite vivid, dramatic accounts of those temptations, Mark just glosses over it in a couple of verses. The questions or challenges of those temptations, Mark's not bothered. And in much of the rest of the story, Jesus will seem very active, very much in control. But in these scenes, Jesus is quite passive. Things just happen to him. He's baptised. The Spirit descends on him. He's thrust out into the wilderness. But there are a couple of things which link the two passages. One of them It's the spirit. The spirit descends on Jesus as he hears the voice from heaven. And then the spirit casts him into the wilderness. Matthew and Luke tend to soften that a bit and speak of Jesus being led into the wilderness. Mark uses quite strong language. It's the same word that he'll use later to describe what Jesus does to evil spirits as he casts them out of people. But the other thing is Mark's main point in telling these stories in the first place. If last week's passage was about John preparing the way for God to act in Jesus, this week's asking the question, well what's this God like? And that might sound quite high theological stuff, but it's actually a question which has a very earthy practical side. And it has a bearing on how we live today. The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau once said, God created man in his own image, and man being a gentleman returned the favour. We have the capacity to shape our gods, but our gods also shape us. What we believe about God can shape how we approach him and other people. If the God in whom you believe is a petty, vindictive, judgmental God, that becomes a justification for those traits in our own lives. Or if your God is violent and vengeful, it becomes much more easy to justify your own violent, vengeful streaks. But if God is generous, gracious, and loves us unconditionally, well, that calls us to a different kind. And that's why it's so important that we're guided by what God reveals about himself. One of the very earliest Christian hymns, so early it actually makes it into the New Testament, puts it like this. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In the introduction to the Gospel of John, we read, No one has ever seen God, but his one and only Son, that's Jesus, has made him known. God is Christ-like, and in him is no un likeness at all. If we want the clearest picture of God, the best place to look is Jesus. What's going on in these two little scenes we've read together this morning? As Mark begins to tell the story of Jesus, he's been setting the scene. Last week, he linked the story back to the Old Testament scriptures. And Mark was highlighting that the arrival of Jesus isn't just another random event in the chain. It's about God fulfilling promises he made from way back. Today, Mark completes the scene setting by showing us something of what the God who's about to be revealed in Jesus is like. In many ways, these passages are more about the Father and the Spirit than about Jesus. Mark isn't especially bothered about questions, questions, why is Jesus baptised? He's more interested in the sky opening, the Spirit falling, and the voice from heaven. He's not especially interested in the nature of the temptations, what they say about how Jesus will live up to his calling, or even about how Jesus overcomes temptation. He's more interested in the Spirit taking him into the wilderness and god's care of him even in that danger so we read of jesus coming from nazareth and being baptized by john in the jordan and then as he rises from the water jesus sees the heavens open the spirit descending on him like a dove and he hears the voice you're my son i love you i'm pleased with you How many children long to hear words like that from a parent? How many long to know a love that's unconditional? How much damage is caused by that sense of love and approval as having to be earned? And how often do we feel that way about God? How many of us carry around the sense of a heavenly parent who's angry, strict, legalistic, who's never really satisfied? A few nights ago, I dozed off listening to an audiobook called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything by James Martin. And maybe there was a reason I woke when I did. Because as I woke, I heard him speak of the image of God as a stern traffic cop, concerned only with enforcing the law or as a parole officer. And he asked how many children grew up in church And then concluded that the spiritual life wasn't an invitation to a relationship from a loving God, but a series of complicated rules from a tyrant God. He talks of how years of providing spiritual direction and he had noted that virtually every person he had directed at some point has become stuck with a childhood image of God to see him either as a judge or even worse as an evil genius. And perhaps so-called Catholic guilt isn't just limited to Catholics. I remember Chris Ellis, one of our former Baptist college principals, and a former president of the Baptist Union, coming to speak to us at college and saying that decades of sitting in ministers' gatherings had taught him that most of us preach a gospel of grace, but live as if we're different, that we have to earn God's love, acceptance and affection. And that's why it's important to mark that Jesus hears these words right at the start. Before Jesus has done anything, before he has spoken a single word, he hears these words. You're my son. I love you. I'm thrilled with you. He hasn't healed a single person, hasn't told a single parable, hasn't bamboozled a single scribe or Pharisee. But he's still loves. With a love that is utterly unconditional. Yeah, I know Jesus has been around for 30 years. And Luke records one incident from his childhood. And we can make all sorts of assumptions about how Jesus' life had panned out up to that point. And Mark would have known all that too. But he just wasn't interested. It wasn't the point. If he wanted to make the point that Jesus had done something to earn God's love and approval. He could have told us. But he didn't. Mark wants us to know that God's love for us is unconditional. That God is a God who looks upon each one of us just as he looked on Jesus and says, You are my dear, dear child. I love you. I'm thrilled with you. I'm putting those words on the screen. I invite you to read them slowly to yourself. Add your own name to the front. Reflect on God saying those words to you. You are my dear, dear child. I love you. I'm thrilled with you. We need those words because life will thrust us into situations in which we'd rather not find ourselves, that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. Jesus doesn't rise from the baptism to some sort of charmed life. He finds himself thrust into the wilderness, into trial and temptation. And so it is for us. Yes, there are high points on the journey, but there are dark, dark, difficult paths. Sometimes they come right after the high point. There'll be temptation. There'll be times when we're tempted in all sorts of ways. And how we view God in those times will make a difference. If we set out thinking of God as a bully, an angry, threatening parent who has to be appeased all the time and will give up on us if we let it down, we're going to struggle when trouble comes. And we might live with a load of false guilt as we assume that what we face is the result of God having a go at us for our failure. But if we face it, knowing that we are loved with a love that is unconditional and will never let us go, that's a whole new world. The path of faith doesn't bypass the wilderness. It's not without its struggles. It's not about the quick fix, the path around the troubles. It's about knowing that we are not forgotten as we go through it. It was true of Jesus. And it's true of us. Jesus faced the dangers of the wilderness and of all that followed all the way to the cross but God did not forget him. God loved him, acted through him. God's Spirit empowered him and enabled him to face it all because through that Spirit he was reminded that he was loved. Just as the same Spirit if we look to him, that same spirit will be planted in us and will whisper those same words of love into our hearts. You're loved. You're precious. You're mine. Not because you've earned it, simply because God loves us with an everlasting love that never lets go. That's the God we encounter in Jesus. Jesus. In Jesus we get the most complete picture of that God. For God is Christ-like and in him is no un likeness at all. And in Jesus we see a God who looks upon us with love. Unconditional love. And a God who is committed to us. So that whatever we face, we don't face it alone. He is with us through it all. Speaking the words of love speaking the words of life grace and peace to